0: So after taking a little break uh, last Sunday morning for Easter, we're back in Revelation this morning, and just to remind you and bring you up to speed of of where we are in the book, in uh, chapter 4, John was called up in a vision from his vantage point of earth, where he had been exiled on Patmos. He was called up into heaven. To behold, in chapter 4, a throne room. And there is... The first thing he sees in Revelation chapter 4 is a throne. And the throne is not empty. There is an occupied throne in heaven. Someone is at the helm of history. This is the big idea of Revelation chapter 4. And yet... He who sits on the throne has decreed that his redemptive intervention and his judgment in the world will be mediated. So he is sovereign over all things, and yet what he has written in the scroll must be opened and unfolded on earth, as it were, by a mediator. Someone needs to open... The scroll. Who is worthy to open the scroll and unfold in time and space to bring to pass what God has decreed? Well, as Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Worthy is the Lamb. God is going to bring to pass everything that He has decreed and everything that He has purposed by means of His servant, the appointed one. Christ Jesus. So we approach chapter 6 now with the paradigm that the Lamb is about to open the scroll. And as He opens it, the things written in it come to pass. Opening the scroll, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, not only reveals the decrees of God, but actually accomplishes the decrees of God. Which is why it was so urgent and so necessary that someone be found worthy to open the scroll. Otherwise, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, there would just be misery on earth with no intervention from heaven. This is why John wept when at first no one was found worthy. But then Jesus steps up, takes on the task, and he is the one who is going to unfold in time and space what God has decreed what God has written in the scroll so this is what's going on in Revelation by way of review now as to the mechanics of opening the scroll and revealing its contents Robert Mounts a commentator says it should be noted that the scroll is not actually opened until all the seven seals are removed so in a sense the content of the scroll begins with chapter 8 Well, I believe that this is inaccurate because the things that John is able to see and hear in chapters 6 and 7 are directly connected to the opening of each subsequent seal. So though it is true, naturally speaking, if I had a scroll rolled up in front of you with seven seals on it, though it is true, naturally speaking, that A scroll with seven seals would not be able to be opened until all seven were removed. Remember, we're dealing here in Revelation with apocalyptic imagery in which things are not always strictly literal, nor do they always follow the natural order of things. I and and many other interpreters, I'm not just taking on the whole world here, I and many other interpreters believe that John is able to perceive gradually, as each of the subsequent seals is opened, John is able to perceive gradually more and more what is written in that scroll. As the first seal is opened, he sees a little bit of what's in the scroll. As the second seal is opened, he sees a little bit more of what is written in the scroll. So we might think of it by way of analogy, like a Christmas gift in wrapping paper if you tear away a little bit, you get a little peek. If you tear away a little bit more, you get a little bit more of a peek. And finally, you open up the whole thing and you see everything. That is, I think, more the way that we ought to take this. It should be noted then, contra mounts, against mounts, that the scroll is gradually opened as each of the seven seals is removed and that the content of the scroll is actually what is contained in chapters 6 and 7, therefore, which form, 6 and 7, form our first cycle or our first camera angle of the unfolding of history in keeping with what I told you about the cyclical structure of Revelation in my introductory message to the book. Remember, and for the sake of those maybe who missed it, what we see in Revelation is not chapters 4 through 22 going through in a linear fashion as to the progression of history. But we see, like when you're watching a sports game and someone makes a fantastic play, you see it replayed from several different angles. This is what basically happens in Revelation. You see several cycles which tell us the same thing in slightly different ways. So, 6 and 7 and the unfolding the opening of the seals and the unfolding of the scroll gives us our first cycle, or our first camera angle, if you will. So, all that said, I reiterate, we approach chapter 6 now with the paradigm that the Lamb is about to open the scroll, and as He opens it, the things written in it come to pass. Opening the scroll, or opening the seals not only reveal the decrees of God, but actually accomplish the decrees of God. And what is the first thing that God has decreed, which John perceives with the opening of the first seal? Look at verse 2. Well, verse 1 says, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And then verse 2 says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse... And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. The first thing, therefore, that God has decreed, which John proceeds with the opening of the first seal, is that the rider on the white horse has been given a crown and comes out conquering and to conquer. Now, basically, you have two broad schools of thought on who this rider is on this white horse who has been given a crown and comes out conquering, and to conquer. Ironically, the two broad schools of interpretation are diametrically opposed. Because one of the schools of thought is that it's Christ, and the other school of thought is that it's the Antichrist. (laughs) So, let me make my case here that it is Christ. First of all, we interpret, we ought, to, we ought to interpret similar symbols in similar ways when they come from the same section of Scripture. Now those of you who are familiar with the book of Revelation will recall another place where there is a rider on a white horse. It's in chapter 19, verse 11 and following, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we have a very clear reference to Christ on a white horse, with a crown on his head, conquering, in chapter 19. I believe, therefore, the most natural and the most sensible interpretation of a rider on a white horse in chapter 6, with a crown on his head, conquering and to conquer, is the same guy, namely Jesus. But let me fortify the case by saying this. Theologically, conquering means presently, and to conquer means the future. Now, if it were the Antichrist and we said, he comes out conquering, well, is Jesus losing right now? No. (laughs) Could we say maybe there's a sense in which the Antichrist is conquering now? Maybe. But could we say that there there is... any sense in which we can speak not only present, but future about the Antichrist conquering theologically, the answer to that is no because if the answer to that is yes then we really have no hope to look forward to, do we? because if the Antichrist is conquering and to conquer then we're just losing and not only are we losing presently but we're going to lose in the future And so, both by comparing the symbolism of chapter 19 with chapter 6, and because theologically it fits much better to say that Christ is conquering and will conquer, we ought to take this as Christ Jesus and not the Antichrist. As I have told you a couple times before, and as I'll tell you again, I don't have the time or space to explain to you all of the wrong interpretations of the book of Revelation. I might just mention them a little bit here and there as we go through, or when an issue like this comes up, I'll try to give you at least at least aware, raise awareness that there are differing ways of taking this. But having said what I just said, I'm just going to proceed with the assumption here that what we're talking about is Christ Jesus. And let me explain as I go on, and I hope you'll see the way that this chapter comes together when we take the... White, the rider on the white horse as Christ Jesus. The first thing that God has decreed, which John perceives with the opening of the first seal, is that Christ Jesus has been given a crown and has come out conquering and to conquer. Jesus, as we we read in Revelation 19, Is that one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Which is a reference back to Psalm 2. Which we sang. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers of the earth gather themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. There is a battle here which is happening around us. Which will come to a head at the end of all things. And who will conquer? Christ Jesus. The preeminent first thing that God has decreed is that I have set my son in Zion. And he will rule and he will reign. What was the first thing that John saw in chapter 4 when he was called up into heaven? A throne. What is the first thing that John sees when the seals are opened? A king! God's sovereignty, God's rule, God's reign is repeatedly emphasized in the book of Revelation. God, who sits in the heavens, just laughs when the kings of the earth and the rulers get together and say, Look, we're going to overthrow this guy. God just laughs and He says... I have set my king on my holy hill. And y'all are not going to defeat him. You're not going to overthrow him. He will rule and reign. In fact, he will smash you to pieces with a rod of iron. That's God's response. Jesus is given a crown and comes out conquering and to conquer. That's the first thing that John is able to perceive when God's decrees are gradually opened up. It's fundamental it's first and foremost with respect to God's decrees. Now this does not mean that the world gradually gets better. Look at verses 3 to 11. And, and I, 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 I struggle with how much to bite off this week because there are seven seals. But if we go all the way through seven seals... We're already into chapter eight, which would mean I'd have to take on like oh, more than two chapters. So we're, we're. But then I was like, "Well, how can we just take four seals or five seals?" Look, there's probably going to be some overlap as we work. We'll allude a little bit, maybe to next week, and next week we'll probably allude back to what we're dealing with this week. But look at verses three to eleven. Just look at what happens after we realize that God has decreed that Christ Jesus will rule and reign. And as, as Jesus comes out of God's decrees, rides out of the scroll, as it were, onto the scene of human history with a crown on a white horse, conquering and to conquer, what do we read next? When he opened the second seal, verse 3, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. So that people should slay one another. Well, maybe the third seal gets better. Verse 5. Behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Ah, scales, what? Justice. So the third rider is going to bring justice to the earth. Well, what does he use the scales for? I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius... And three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. Oh, no. He's not, he doesn't have the scales of justice. He has the scales to weigh out bread. So that we can know how much we've got to pay for our bread. Now, remember that a denarius was a day's wages back in this time. Right? Or roughly equivalent to a day's wages for labor. So you think groceries are expensive in Barbados. <laughs> Alright, listen here. A quart of wheat is basically one man's food for a day. Which means it costs you your whole wages just to buy food for yourself. Now, what happens if you've got a wife and kids? What happens if you've got a phone bill? And Digicel or Flow is saying, hey, time to pay up. What happens if you've got to pay rent? What happens if you've got to put gas in the car? This is a serious problem. This here represents famine. Or some, some scholars take it, economic inflation. I mean, either way, it functionally it translates to purchasing power. Poverty. Famine. Where you're spending literally everything you earn just to get enough food for yourself. And obviously, if you share that with your wife and your kids, you're not getting enough food for yourself. Neither are they getting enough food for themselves. So the second seal brings out a, 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 a rider on a horse that takes peace from the earth. The third seal brings out a rider who brings poverty and famine to the earth. When he opened the fourth seal, verse 7 verse 8, I looked and behold a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence. And by wild beasts of the earth. There is this culling of the population of the earth, which the fourth writer brings in. These are presented as indiscriminate sufferings of the world. These are things that Christians and non Christians alike are going to have to go through. There is going to be war, there is going to be poverty. Or famine. There is going to be death. Not everyone survives a war. Not everyone makes it through poverty and finds a way to survive with with hungry tummies. Some people succumb in times like this, when times get tight. These are indiscriminate sufferings that the whole world is going to have to go through. And then when he opened the fifth seal, verse nine. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are not indiscriminate sufferings now. These are the sufferings of God's people because they hold fast to the gospel. This is the suffering of persecution. Poverty and famine is not something that's unique to Christians, nor is it unique to unbelievers. Neither is war or attacks by wild beasts or whatnot. But persecution is something that is the unique lot of those who are in Christ Jesus, who hold fast to the testimony of the gospel. What we see as the seals continue to be opened is that just because Christ Jesus has been given a crown and rides out of the scroll onto the pages of human history conquering and to conquer. It does not therefore follow that the world gradually gets better. It does not therefore follow that we find that everything gets smoother and that there's less war and that there's less poverty That there's less famine. Does not follow that we find a way to preserve life. And that there is less death. These things roll on. Even though Christ has come out conquering and to conquer. These things roll on as they have been rolling on. Ever since Adam's fall into sin. In the beginning. God's plan involves the concurrent growth of both the wheat and the weeds. Let me turn you back to Matthew chapter 13 to show you where I'm drawing that language, that analogy from. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 36 of Matthew 13. Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun. In the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, or sorry, he who has ears, let him hear. That ears to hear just slipped out because it's in other places. God's plan involves the concurrent growth of both the wheat and the weeds. Look, we need to hear what happens is the second seal and the third seal and the fourth seal and the fifth seal. And we need to understand that God's plan involves the concurrent growth of both the wheat and the weeds until the end of the age so that we don't become triumphalistic based on the idea and a sim- simplistic interpretation of it that Christ has been given a crown and rides out conquering and to conquer. Let me give you a brief contrast between a few various schools of thought. There are some Christians who believe that Christ essentially takes over nations and changes them through official channels here and now. He does this by means of getting Christian kings and Christian prime ministers and Christian presidents Christian members of parliament Christian celebrities Christian Athletes, Christian, on and on it goes. And as these people take over the high places, through them, Christ takes over nations and changes them through official channels. The most direct and, and obvious and... Uh, n- not to say, Not to say this in a pejorative way, but the most extreme way that this school of thought manifests itself, is in nations making laws which enforce the worship of Christ. Alright? They believe that this is what is happening, this is what is prophesied, this is what ought to be happening, this is what we ought to be pursuing and doing, is basically seeing Christ take over nations and change nations by means of official channels through Christian representatives. And that this is how Christ comes out conquering and to conquer. Well, I'm just going to give you one problem with this. You can listen to our Old Testament series where I spent about 8 or 10 weeks dealing with issues like this. At much greater length if you want to hear more. But I'm just going to give you one problem with this school of thought. A state church negates religious liberty. And makes the king, if you will, the head of the church. Now, that is problematic uh, for a number of reasons. We just came through a, a period of time where there was a lot of discussion about the relationship between church and state. In case anyone is not picking up what I'm throwing down, I'm talking about COVID. <laughs> Alright, there was obviously a lot of discussion back and forth about how ought the church to relate to the state. Our position at this church is that the state has jurisdiction over the church as an organization within its boundaries, the same way that um, the state governs over. Uh, other religious organizations, other non-religious organizations, all of the businesses that happen within its jurisdiction, things like noise bylaws, uh, parking issues, health mandates, public health mandates. With respect to things like this, the church, or, pardon me, the state has legitimate jurisdiction. Whether they use that legitimately or not is a separate question. But there is legitimate jurisdiction over these things. But what we believe is that the state has no authority with respect to the substance of the church's worship. We believe that God has put the church under the direct rule of uh, Christ Jesus, who is the head of the church. No one on earth can say that they're the head of the church. And that it is the authority... Of Christ speaking through the apostles and prophets recorded in scripture uh, by which we understand what Christ's commands are, and then that, that Christ has appointed pastors and deacons in the church to rule under the word of God but over the church in terms to, uh, of to guide the church with respect to the word of God. A state church makes put it in practical terms, Mia Motley and her parliament, the ones who decide what we should be doing and what we should believe and how we should practice the Christian faith here in Barbados, right? Suffice it to say, we don't agree with that view. It's probably problematic for a number of reasons that I can't get into this morning. But that's one school of thought with respect to how Christ comes out conquering and to conquer And the view there would lead to, theoretically, a Christian society in which Christian ideals are lived out and realized, and where there is going to be, therefore, no war but just war, where there are going to be fair economic practices and policies which will preserve us, for the most part, against bad economic policy leading to poverty and famine, And people are going to look out for their neighbors and share so that everybody's going to have what they need and no injustice is going to be done. and No one's going to starve while others have plenty because the Christian magistrates are going to make sure that everything happens the way it's supposed to be. And this is the way that Christ comes out, conquering and to conquer and making everything like it should be. The second broad school of thought is that it's not through official channels that this happens, but that the gospel permeates nations as more and more people become believers. And as more and more people become believers, you don't have to legislate these things. They just happen organically because now people love Jesus. And so when the gospel gets enough of a foothold in a nation, then... Uh, What you're going to have is, again, you're not going to have unjust wars and people slaying one another and famine and poverty and whatnot because there are just going to be so many believers that the whole culture, there's going to be so much critical mass that these things are staved off and precluded or at least pushed to the periphery to such an extent that they're no longer really a significant issue, no longer such a... Um, presenting reality. I would say sometimes in pockets to some extent, we've seen that in church history, but if you think about, for example, like the Puritan era, which is probably the the clearest possible example we could have of the gospel just really, really getting a hold of people so profoundly that um, all of society really begins taking seriously the claims of Christ and thinking about how do we do this at an organic level. That, that probably is maybe like the high watermark of what we might call um, uh, an organically Christian society in terms of like the number of people converted. But here's a couple of issues. Religious people were actually putting each other in prison. Like it was illegal to be a Baptist uh, at, the, at the height of that period in the 17th century. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress from jail. Crimin- criminal that he was. <laughs> what a, what a miscreant, man, to be a Baptist. And so that obviously didn't stop people from fighting and having wars with one another and obviously as we know emerging out of uh, that society was colonialism and the whole African slave trade. so it hardly, it hardly got rid of people slaying each other and people mistreating one another. It hardly got rid of poverty and famine and so on and so forth. And we see Counter-examples. That's maybe like the best example where there was a lot of good things that did happen and did come out of that society. And there was a lot of good foundational things that were built into the West coming out of that as well as bad. But there are counter examples of strong churches which don't lead to societal change. Namely, right now, the church in China, from all accounts, is thriving. And there are... Underground Christians who are not allowed to worship publicly and openly but guys that are going over there and meeting with these people are testifying that These are really serious Christians They're they're as bold as lions They're trying to live holy lives They spend literally hours in prayer a guy went over and and preached to them for an hour and they were like That's it. Keep going. They're like we need they're like they they One of them sent a message back and said, stop sending us guys that can only preach for an hour or two. We need guys that can go all day. (laughs) Because they're like, basically, we're risking our lives to be here. And many of us are traveling for hundreds of miles. And look, we're we're not here for like an hour or two. We're serious about being here. And we're serious about learning about the Word of God. Like the gospel is getting a hold of people. And it really is spreading like wildfire. And yet we're not seeing... That it's having this organic, transformational approach. Alright? The third broad school of thought, which is the school of thought that I believe is correct. Which, I'm, I'm coming back to Revelation. I'm just trying to show you and give you a lay of the land. The third school of thought that I think is basically correct is this. That Christ's kingdom grows concurrently with the persistence of all other kingdoms. Including their ongoing evil deeds. Till the end. The wheat and the weeds grow up together. There are always going to be unbelieving magistrates, kings, presidents, prime ministers, members of parliament, judges. There's always going to be corrupt law systems. There's always going to be unjust wars. There's always going to be bad economic policy. There's always going to be unbelievers at the organic level who don't receive the gospel who don't imbibe it, who hate it, and who persecute Christians. What we are going to see, therefore, is not radical transformation across the whole earth before Christ returns. We may see in pockets, yes, I admit, in pockets, in places, we might see radical transformation. We might see... Neighborhoods where the gospel really gets a hold, and there's wonderful, powerful stories of transformation coming up. We might see whole societies, to some extent, transformed. As as much as coming out of the Puritan area, er, or not area, the Puritan era, as much as Christendom wasn't perfect, and I just I just gave you a couple of glaring blemishes of Western civilization coming out of the Puritan era, it is better than the paganism that reigned a thousand years prior. There were hospitals built, schools built, there was like English uh, common law which serves as the basis of our, the judicial systems of basically the whole West is actually way more just than so many judicial systems throughout history. There are a lot of good things that that... The teachings of Christ and the gospel did for the West, which we're now moving away from, by the way. But what I'm saying is we might see pockets of this transformation, but we might not. There are places where you you hear that saying, "The, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And to some extent, and in some places, that's true. But there are also places in the world where Christianity has been nearly stamped out in that place. In that pocket. No one can stamp out the church because Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But there are places today which are now considered unreached because statistically there's less than 2% of an evangelical Christian population which were once epicenters of Christianity. Think about that. We are not led by the scriptures, we are not led by the scriptures to believe in wholesale global transformation by official means or by organic means such that people slaying each other and economic and bad economic policies leading to poverty and famine and natural disasters and so on and so forth, we're not led to believe that these things will be radically changed before the coming of Christ Jesus. What we see rather is that Christ comes out conquering and to conquer. And there is a second seal and a rider on a red horse who has permission to take away peace from the earth such that people slay each other. And there is a third seal which is opened, which brings about poverty and famine where people can't afford the things that they need. And there is a fourth seal where death catches up with a bunch of people. And there is a fifth seal where persecution continues and persists Throughout this age. What does it say here? In Revelation chapter 6, they say, How long, O oh Lord? How long? And they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is a prophecy that more and more Christians are going to die. Even though Christ comes out conquering and to conquer. So, Christ comes out conquering and to conquer, but this does not mean that the world gradually gets better. Christ's, the unfolding of what is written in the scroll involves the concurrent growth of both the wheat. and And the weeds. So I encouraged you, and then I discouraged you. Now let me swing back and encourage you some more. But without falling into the ditch that we have just fortified ourselves against. Listen. Christ will build His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. In that section... For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus is going to build his church on Peter alone, or or that he gives Peter a rank above the other apostles, as is taught in the Roman Catholic Church, for example. Rather, Peter here in Matthew 16 is paradigmatic of the foundation of the church. Which is the teaching of the apostles and prophets. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, we read that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And that teaching comes to us in Holy Scripture. Here is Peter confessing that you are the Christ. The son of the living God. And Jesus says that's right. And as you go out and teach that. And proclaim that. Together with the other apostles. And as people believe that. And share that around the world. On that confession. On that teaching. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are... We ought to recognize then that ad, the way that Christ builds His church is not through official state coerced religion. What it looks like is not necessarily the the gospel getting a hold of a society in such a way that it that it radically transforms it. What kingdom growth? looks like is people confessing that Christ Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God believing that coming to faith in that in other words making disciples of all nations right and then teaching them baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded this is what it looks like for Christ to build his church He does that then through us. Through our proclamation. Through this same confession that Peter said. You are the Christ. The son of the living God. Jesus says yes. On this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. The means by which Christ conquers and will conquer... Is people becoming disciples and being taught to observe all that He has commanded? As we go out then and, and do this great commission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and to, uh, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded, will there be wars? According to Revelation 6? Yes. That's the second seal. Will there be famine? Yes. That's the third seal. Poverty. Will there be death? Yes. That's the fourth seal. Will there be persecution? Yes. As we go out and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. We shouldn't think that we're doing something wrong just because people are slaying one another still. We shouldn't think that we're failing or or that... Something is not right just because there's still poverty. Because there's still famine. We shouldn't be thinking that Christ is not building his church just because people around us are still dying. Poverty's catching up with them. Or they're slain. Or wild beasts get at them, as the, as the fourth seal says. We shouldn't think that we're doing something wrong if we're persecuted. If we go out and we're trying to make disciples and teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded and people hate us and persecute us, we shouldn't think, well, I thought Christ was conquering and will conquer. But it seems like He's not. No. What I'm saying to you and what Revelation 6 teaches us is that Christ coming out conquering and to conquer does not preclude people slaying each other, poverty, famine, Death, nor persecution. Those things will happen even as Christ builds His church. Will there be wars? Yes. Will there be famine? Yes. Will there be death? Yes. Will there be persecution? Yes. But will Christ build His church? Yes. He will. Has He come out of the scroll of God's decree, riding into human history, conquering and to conquer? Yes. The first seal tells us that even though there will be wars and death and famine and persecution and so forth, in the midst of it all, Christ's kingdom advances and gains ground. This is the message that Revelation 6, 1-11 lays forth in front of us. In our evening service, We're studying the Old Testament chronologically, which means in the order that the events and the teachings occurred. And right now we're in the section about the conquest of the Promised Land. In their case, the Israelites conquered and advanced by means of the sword. Christ's conquest now, here, here and now, differs in that his kingdom comes, in the words of the hymn that we're about to sing, not with swords loud clashing. No roll of stirring drums. But it is a war, and it is a conquest that we're engaged in. Make no mistake. Psalm 2, which we sang earlier in the service, tells us, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. In the end, the anointed Son strikes a devastating and violent blow to His opponents which Revelation goes on to deal with and which we will deal with also as it comes up in the text. But in the meantime, until the end, Christ publishes terms of surrender towards His enemies. And He bids them come through our proclamation of the Gospel to change sides, to march under His banner and to take refuge in Him. Until Christ returns, until the end of all things, this is how Christ conquers By subjecting his enemies to him through their voluntary surrender at the proclamation of peace through the gospel. We're not to take Revelation 6.2 as teaching that Christ conquers here and now in history by some type of military crusade as Christians wrongly practiced in the past and some misguidedly think along similar lines today. But we're not therefore to think that Christ isn't presently conquered. In addition to having been appointed one day in the future to conquer. Christ comes out conquering and to conquer. Let us therefore march with Him. Conquering and to conquer. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your co-workers. Amidst all the war and famine. And persecution and death, Jesus rides out conquering and to conquer. It's not too late to subject yourself to Him, to join His side, and thereby to have hope eternal, even though you may meet with some of the sufferings connected with the other seals in the here and now. Lead on, O King Eternal. We follow not with fears.